Well, good morning. I want to begin this morning by reading to you the first part of an ancient Christian creed. It's called the Nicene Creed. It was written in A.D. 325. The creed begins with this. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who, for us men, for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. Let me stop at that portion of the Nicene Creed. It's, it's an important creed. It's one that we still confess today. The Nicene Creed succinctly states what the Apostle Paul proclaims and what he proclaimed in Colossians in particular in chapter 1. The truths that Paul proclaimed there were about Christ's superiority. And those truths completely transformed not only the Apostle Paul, but the men who drafted the Nicene Creed. Those men who drafted this creed, it transformed their lives as they began to defend the truth about who Christ is. The truth about the Lord Jesus Christ that's declared in the Nicene Creed not only protected the early church from an ancient heresy called Arianism, today we would have the equivalent of that heresy in the Jehovah's Witness, they're Arians at heart. This Nicene Creed protected the early church from that Arian heresy, And the truth about Christ not only protected them, it transformed these men as they drafted this creed, as they wrote this creed and began to defend it practically. And this creed, if you understand it and you truly love it, will transform you as you defend it and as you proclaim it. One man in church history that helped to draft this creed and defend this creed was a man named Athanasius. Athanasius stood firm on this creed, on this truth about who Christ is. He stood firm when everyone around him said, no, Athanasius, you're wrong. The clergy said, you're wrong. The world said, you're wrong. And they said to Athanasius, Athanasius, don't you know that everyone is against you? And Athanasius said, well, then I guess Athanasius is against the world. One historian described Athanasius this way. It was the passion and the life work of Athanasius to vindicate the deity of Christ, which he rightly regarded as the cornerstone of the edifice of the Christian faith, and without which he could conceive no redemption. For this truth he spent all his time and strength. For this he suffered disposition and twenty years of exile. For this he would have been at any moment glad to pour out his own blood. The truth about Christ's superiority radically transformed 
Athanasius, and it will radically transform us as well. When we grasp this, it will change the way we live our lives and the way we testify to who Christ is. And that's what I think Colossians helps us do. I think Colossians 1, 15 to 20 was intended to change us, not just defend the truth, but to transform those who believe the truth. That's why we're going to continue examining the superiority of Jesus Christ from Colossians 1, 15 this morning. If you would, please open your Bibles there with me. We're going to look at Colossians and read from verse 15 down to verse 20 so that we can grasp really the the flow of, of Paul's thought, his contextual idea here. We want to read this entire passage so that we actually understand that. So let me, let me begin in verse 15. And in verse 15, when you see the reference to he, that's, that's pointing back into verse 13 and 14, talking about the beloved son, which is Jesus Christ. So just understand that when, when verse 15 begins, he's talking about Jesus. Verse 15 reads, He, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the one that Paul writes about that we now serve here on earth. The truth about who he is should transform the way we live. I think that's what this is intended to do. It's, it's a guard and a guide to the church at Colossae. It's guarding them against some false teachers who were coming in and attacking the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, and just attacking Christ in general. But it's more than just a defense of the faith. I think it's a transformational confession of the faith. He's implying, look look at the one who bled for you on the cross. If you look at him, can you be the same? Will this not change you? He's implying there is a change that will take place if you understand the testimony of Christ and the superiority of Christ. And that's what we began to look at last week. In verse 15, the Apostle Paul unveils two things to us. Number one, he unveils the eternal testimony of Jesus Christ. And number two, he unveils the superior authority of Jesus Christ. As I said, last Sunday we looked at Colossians 1, 15a, part A, the first half of that verse, which says, He is the image of the invisible God. And there we learned that, number one, Jesus has an eternal testimony. He is deity. Look at John 1 real quickly with me. John 1 helps us understand what Paul means here in Colossians 1.15. In John 1.14, we see a confirming testimony about Christ and who He is. 1.14 says, speaking of Jesus as the Word, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, 
We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me. Notice the word rank there. Preeminent. He is preeminent. He has a higher rank. He comes before me, he says, because he was before me. He existed before me. Now, John was born first, humanly speaking. But Jesus existed before him. Verse 16 says, And from the one spoken of in verse 14, which is Christ, And from his fullness we have received, we have all received, grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the invisible God, that Paul talks about in Colossians 1.15. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Speaking of Jesus, he says, No one has ever seen God the Father, but the one who became flesh, who pitched his tent among us, the word that became flesh, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made the Father known to us. He has drawn him out and shown us what the Father is like. And I mentioned last week that that was not only an important doctrine, that's an essential doctrine. This truth has a purpose. This truth points us to worship Christ as God. God the Son. That's what John's saying and what Paul is saying. God the Son took on flesh to pay a penalty for us. To pay our sin debt. To set us free. And in the context of Colossians 1, 13 and 14, the one who set us free set us free to serve in His kingdom eternally. He delivered us from sin's dark dominion. Right? And He placed us into the purity of His kingdom. And so that means that the one who, who did this for us has a right to rule over us because He is king. He is preeminent. He has the highest rank among us. He has the highest rank among us and He shows us the most grace. He revealed to us God's eternal love personally. And on the cross, He revealed to us God's eternal justice completely. He purchased us there with His own blood by taking our place on the cross. And so that that should change us. This isn't just a theological or doctrinal statement that Paul gives us here about the deity of Christ. He's giving us this this great truth to transform us. Now, as you go back to Colossians 1.15, you're going to see that under the inspiration, the brilliant inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul leads us from this glorious truth about Christ's eternal testimony into the second point that I want to point out this morning about Christ's superior authority. He had an eternal testimony being God of very God, and that means he has superior authority over all things and all peoples, including false teachers. False teachers claimed that they had superiority over Paul. They had fresher revelations than Jesus, so that the church at Colossae should listen to them rather than these archaic written doctrines. We have guys like that today, don't we? But here we see that Christ is superior to all their authority. Colossians 1.15b tells us that Jesus, or He, is the firstborn of all creation. Or let me translate it, I think, more appropriately. According to the Greek text, He 
is the highest in rank over all creation. That's really what this means. He is the highest in rank over all creation because of his testimony, because he is deity. But before we can really get into this verse, we need to understand this one phrase that throws everybody off and that the Jehovah's Witness love to use to try to refute us. It's the word firstborn. They teach that Jesus was created, that he didn't have an eternal existence as the Son of God, that he was created. And so we need to understand this one key term before we can really go any further into this text. So let's, let's just do a little word study this morning on firstborn. Firstborn, that term in the Greek is prototakos. Prototakos. And that term has to be, has to be understood in its surrounding context. The context helps you understand how to interpret this word in particular, prototakos, firstborn. That's why I began reading in verse 15 and read down to verse 20. The term, in context, the term firstborn implies two things in the Apostle Paul's mind. Number one, the term firstborn implies that Christ was prior, or he existed prior to all creation. But the term firstborn also implies, number two, that Christ is sovereign over all creation. He's not just prior. He didn't just exist prior to all creation. He is sovereign over all creation still today. The Apostle Paul uses the word is in verse 15. It means he's still sovereign, always has been sovereign, was sovereign before creation, remains sovereign after creation and over creation. So just, just think through this for just a moment in the way in which Paul's writing it, and, and think through the context. He's, he's basically saying this. Paul is saying that Jesus, our Redeemer, in verse 14, our Redeemer, Jesus, our Lord, existed prior to or before all created things. So let's think through this logically for a second. Okay, he existed before all created things. So... He must be uncreated. Okay, if, if he's uncreated, hmm, that must mean that he's eternal. Wait a minute, if, if he's eternal, then what does that mean? It means he is God. It means he is God. What Paul's doing is he's, he's just beautifully laying down this argument at the beginning of this. This argument against the false teachers who, who said they were superior to all others. And he says, really? Well, what about Jesus? He is the firstborn. He is the one who has the highest rank and the highest authority. You're over him? Wait a minute. He existed before you. As a matter of fact, he created you. You're under his dominion. In verse 15b, Paul's contextually revealing that Jesus is, he is the firstborn. He is the highest and greatest in position and rank over all creation. That's what he's saying. He's revealing this to the false teachers as well as the church at Colossae. And he's doing that so that they would understand that Jesus' rank and Jesus' revelation is superior to all others because he was before all others and he created all others. 
They claim to have new revelations, but yet Christ was the final revelation from God to us. Look at Hebrews 1. Hebrews 1. We need no new revelations. We need no new visions. We need no new proclamations outside of Scripture to tell us about how to serve God as our Master. We have all that we need here. We need no more regulations. We need nothing else other than what God has given to us in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1 one says, Long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things. That means He is preeminent over all things, highest in rank over all things, firstborn over all things. The firstborn inherits it all. That's the point here. He's the heir of the entire creation. Because through whom, speaking of Jesus, also He created the world. Jesus created the world. Colossians 1 backs that up as well. Verse 3 says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. <laughs> this is... This is Superior power, superior authority. He, he, is, he is upholding the very false teachers there at Colossae. Their hearts are in his hands. It says, after making purification for sins, this Jesus, it says, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The name he inherited, the name that he earned, the name that he deserves is Lord, meaning Master. He is the preeminent one. He dominated here on earth. He dominated sin. He conquered in our place. He brought us victory. He set us free. He set us free from this dark dominion and brought us into his glorious, pure, and bright, and clean kingdom by his own sacrifice. That's what Paul's telling the Colossians to keep in mind when somebody comes along and says, I have a new revelation. I have a new story to tell you that's greater than what Jesus told you, greater than what Paul told you, greater than what the Scriptures testify to you. Paul's saying, no. No one's greater. There is no one with higher authority than Jesus. And he gave us his words, once for all delivered to the saints. Once for all. He's superior because He is over and sovereign over all creation because of His nature. Go back with me there in, in Colossians 1. Just look at verse 17. Still speaking of Jesus. Jesus is before all things, okay? Now, there's one thing that, that we all, always kind of skip over when we think about things. We think about material things. We think about you know, this pulpit or this pew or you know, this uh, life that we live. Yeah, he's, he's definitely before. He, he existed before all those things. That's true. But there's another thing that he existed before that we often don't think about, and that is time itself. Time was created by God. Jesus is eternal. He is before time. And in him, all things, including time, are sustained. And we know that there's going to come an end to this creation. This time will end. 
And it is this Jesus that's spoken of here that will end it because of his superior rank and position. He will be the judge of this earth. Every time you see the word prototakos in the New Testament referring to Christ, it always points to his preeminence, never chronological birth time, okay? has nothing to do with his chronological birth time. It always has to do with his superiority or his greatness. Even in the Hebrews passage we read, the writer of Hebrews would go on to say that Jesus is the firstborn. He talks about him in the sense that he is superior to angels. He's superior to Moses, which would be the law. Okay? He's superior to these things because he created these things. In the Old Testament, though, we do see sometimes the word prototakos used. We see the word firstborn used. And there, sometimes it actually is talking about someone who is literally and physically the, the firstborn chronologically. But not always. It's often used in reference to one who just simply gets the inheritance. And it, that's not necessarily the one who was born first. It, it often speaks of status, not just chronological birth order. In the Old Testament, the term firstborn could sometimes mean first in rank. Let me show you an example of that in Exodus 4:22. It didn't always mean, the term firstborn didn't always mean literally that they were the first in time, or this person or this nation was the first in time or first created. Look at Exodus 4:22. It says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Now, he says that Israel is his prototakos, and it means his preeminent son. Um, firstborn here in this text, when it's translated into Greek and the Septuagint, it is actually the word prototakos, the same word that we see in Colossians 1.15. Yet we, we all know that the nation of Israel was not the first nation ever created in time, was it? No. It was not the first created nation. What, what he's saying contextually is this. God is saying that Israel held first place or had the highest rank in his eyes above all other nations. They were his preeminent people. And, and so when we come back into the New Testament and we see this word prototokos or Prototakos, firstborn, speaking of Jesus. We need to understand it contextually and hermeneutically that way. That is how it should be interpreted regarding Christ. It's talking about his rank. Okay? Let me give you an example of that. Look at Revelation 1.5. Jesus is called in this text and back in Colossians chapter 1, Jesus is called the firstborn of the dead. And it's talking about his resurrection. Okay? Revelation 1, verse 5. It says, speaking of Jesus, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Okay, we know that Jesus wasn't the first person raised from the dead according to the scriptures, right? But, he was the preeminent one or the greatest one that was raised from the dead. Here's why. He held the highest rank. Here's why. 
He was the first to be resurrected from the dead who will never die again. He holds a very unique rank. He would never die again. Lazarus sadly died again. Jesus never will die again. He is superior. His, his eternal testimony and his superior authority as the firstborn of all creation, or the preeminent one, is even foretold in the Psalms. Look with me at Psalm 89. And what this, this, the, the, the point of this sermon today would be to, to not only equip you um, in the Scriptures regarding the preeminence of Christ or the deity of Christ so that you can defend the faith against a Jehovah's Witness or, or someone who would question the truth, but, but it, should, it should transform us as we contemplate who it is that saved us. This is, this is the preeminent one who took on flesh and died in our place. Died, yet he reigns, and he's coming again to receive us to himself. Yet he humbled himself to become like us, so that he could provide something for us that we don't have on our own, which is righteousness. Look at Psalm 89, verse 20. It says, I have found, my, I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil I have anointed him, so that my hand may be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him. I will strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him. And in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn. Prototakos, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens, because he is eternal. He's talking about the offspring of David, which is Jesus, who has the ability to keep us forever. But he is also the highest of the kings of the earth. That's exactly how we are to interpret the word firstborn in the New Testament context regarding Christ. He is the firstborn. He will be the highest of the kings of the earth. And and that whole idea is brought back into the New Testament in many places. Acts chapter 2. We see exactly who the psalmist is talking about there. In Acts 2, Acts 2, verse 30. It says, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne. Now he's speaking of David. He would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. And he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we, are, we all are witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Set at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and 
and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. And what's interesting to me is the next verse. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. When, when God opened their eyes to see the invisible God through Jesus Christ, their hearts were broken over their sinfulness, over their rebellion against this King of glory. It was the incarnate Son of God He's talking about here. The firstborn King, the preeminent King and the Savior of sinners. And, and that was to transform the early church in radical and manifest ways. And I think sometimes we forget about that. Sometimes we talk about Jesus as if He is our friend and we forget that He is our sovereign. And I think that the early church is a great example of a, of a congregation gathered in all different kinds of places and circumstances and, and yet they were hearing one message about who Christ is. And it radically changed them. And what, I, what I want us to think about is how does this radical revelation that Paul gives us of the supreme and superior authority of Christ how does it change us practically? Is it, is it just you know, something that we, we quote, that we say, that we testify to, but we don't really live in light of? I think if we, if we really contemplate this, it will really change us. The, the song we sang, Christ is Lord. That means he is, he is, I'm testifying that He is my Master, he is my king. I am his slave. I am his doulos. He has the right to rule me, to guide me, to correct me, to discipline me. And he has the power to keep me, to love me, to guard me, and to guide me. I am safe in his hands, but I am made for his glory. My life is not my own. I was purchased with a price, his own blood. That is to change us. That is to transform us. When you look into Scripture and you see who Jesus Christ is, who you, when you see who the firstborn King truly is, your eyes will be opened and you will see the invisible God. See, when, when Paul is talking about the invisible God in Colossians 1.15, he's not just simply talking about the fact that God is spirit and we can't see Him with our eyes. He's also talking about the fact that because of our sinfulness, we can't see Him with our hearts. We won't even turn to Him. But Christ opens our eyes to see the glory of God so that we can turn from our sins and trust in His sovereign grace. Look with me at a glimpse of Christ that I think the, the psalmist was referring to and that Acts is referring to and that I see, think is the, the culmination of this vision that, that Paul is talking about of who Christ is. It's found in Revelation 19. And, and listen, I, I do not believe, do not believe that the book of Revelation was written in order to intimidate people to come to Christ because of fear of judgment, because of fear of these tribulation times that are coming. That's not why the book of Revelation was written. There is a promise in the book of Revelation to all who read it and understand it that they would be nourished by it. They would find confidence in it. Why? It's the revelation of, not John, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
in the book of Revelation, we see the culmination of all of the scriptures. We see it all come together. We see the glory of our King and our Master and our Savior all brought together in this one book. Look at Revelation 19:11, so we can see this one that is superior to all created things. Verse 11 says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. Okay, so John's writing this to emphasize what? The same thing Paul's emphasizing in Colossians 1.15. Jesus has the highest rank. He is the prototokos. He is, he is the firstborn. He is the supreme one. He is the preeminent one. He can judge the world. He has a right to do that because He can see into our hearts. And He comes to judge the quick and the dead. Verse 12 says, here's what this, this firstborn looks like in His authority, His rank, and His greatness. His eyes are like a flame of fire, implying that He can burn through our hearts and see what is there. He can illuminate what's down deep inside of us in the darkness. He can judge the thoughts and the intentions of every man's heart. What else does this tell us in verse 12? Well, on his head are many diadems. Diadems are crowns. In other words, he is the king of kings. He wears the crown of crowns. He reigns over all authority, all men, all leaders, all peoples. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The Word of God that became flesh and dwelt among us. Revealed God's glory to us. His grace and truth came to us through Christ. He came with authority. He came humanly. And he's coming again. Here it says clothed in a robe dipped in blood. He's coming judicially. This blood that's on his robe, I do not believe is his own blood. It's the blood of those that he judges in righteousness. That he tramples in his wrath because he is supreme and he is sovereign and they have offended him and they have rebelled against him and he comes in judgment. Verse 14, it says, The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, or following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, his word. His word is what is used to judge the hearts of every man, woman, and child. It is his sharp sword that penetrates and shows what's down deep inside of us. It's his word that will be used to judge every one of us. He comes down to strike down the nations and He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On His robe and on His thigh He has written King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the preeminent King. He is our Master. He is the sustainer of the world. He is able to judge the world that He created. He is able to save those who turn to Him in faith and trust in His righteousness. But you must believe in who He is to be saved. He's not simply a sympathetic 
example hanging on a cross of what love and sacrifice looks like. He didn't come to be an example. He came to be a Savior. He came to be our substitute. He laid aside these crowns and these glorious, these glorious attributes and took on humanity to take our place so that that wrath that they will receive, instead of falling on those who believe, it fell upon Himself. The King took the wrath for us. That, that's supposed to change us. See, I, I think in Colossians 1.15... Paul, Paul has two things going on in his mind. One, guard the church against false teachers. Guard the church against those who would, who would slander who Christ is. But I think that Paul's overarching theme in all things that he does is to glorify Christ because of who he is. I think Paul is laying down some very transcendent and transformational doctrine in Colossians 1, 15 to 18. And I think if you think about the authorial intent here, you'll, you'll see that's his purpose. It's to, it's to bring about the sanctification of the saints by guarding them, but also leading them to worship Christ accurately. I mean, saints, just think about this. The one who died for us, the one who took our penalty in the flesh, he is coming again, not to judge us. He's coming to to enrapture us, to bring us into His bosom, to keep us with Him forever. And if if that's true about the future, how does that change us here practically in the present? I think the doctrinal instruction there in 15 is meant to cultivate something. This is something I want you to write down. I I think that this is intended to cultivate humble boldness. They don't sound like they go together, but in Christ they do. I think that this doctrine, this truth about who Jesus Christ is, who our rescuing Savior is, should create humble boldness in His saints. It should create humble boldness in us. And I think that's what it was doing there in Colossians. These were fearful saints. You must understand the context. These, these saints here at Colossae were being bullied by false teachers. They were being intimidated by men who act like they knew more about the Bible than the men there in that local church. Have you ever felt that way when you're trying to witness to someone? When you're trying to engage in a, an evangelistic conversation with someone, someone who is, is, is opposed to the gospel, have you ever felt intimidated? Have you ever felt bullied by a false teacher? By the Jehovah's Witness knocking at your door? By, by the person that you're sitting across from at lunch and you're trying to share with them how much you love Christ and, and they're mocking you to your face? If, if you understand who Christ is, it will create humble boldness in you when you are intimidated by others. This, this revelation in 115 is meant to put steel into our backbones. The testimony of Christ's life and who He is and what He's done and His authority should put confidence in our arguments. And it should put assurance in our hearts. I don't have to win the arguments. Christ does that. He has the superior ability. I just want to be His faithful witness. And I am confident that if I am declaring Christ to someone, He's being glorified. I don't have to win this argument. I don't have to look good in their eyes. 
I'm worshiping Christ, who is worthy. Just think about who rescued you. And, and I think it'll change the way you encounter people, the way you deal with people. When we think about 115, we think about Jesus as our eternal victor and our sovereign king. That, that's what really, I think, drove the Apostle Paul's life and his ministry from the very beginning. I mean, Paul's on his way to Damascus as Saul to torture, imprison, and murder Christians. And then he gets a, a vision of the invisible God. Christ comes to him personally and opens his eyes to his superiority over the Pharisees, over traditions. And it radically changed the Apostle Paul immediately. It wasn't as if Paul said, okay, I'm going to transition into being a, a disciple of Christ. So I believe in him as my Savior, but I'll make him my Lord later on in my life. No. He says, who are you, Lord? And then all of a sudden he says, I need to go make disciples. You read chapter 9 of Acts. It's just a beautiful flow of thought. Paul's radically saved, then radically becomes a disciple maker immediately. And then he is radically opposed. But he is undaunted. He is continuing on in his ministry because he wants to glorify the firstborn of all creation, Jesus Christ. Look with me in 1 Timothy as I conclude here. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. In 1 Timothy 1, we see that Jesus' testimony cultivated something in the Apostle Paul personally. Jesus' testimony of who he is cultivated humility. When I talk about humble boldness, this is the humble part, okay? Um, this, this revelation of who Christ is produced or cultivated humility in Paul's personal life and also in his ministry. In 1.12, look at this. He writes, I thank Him who has given me strength, Jesus Christ our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord, speaking of Jesus, overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ, Jesus, came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. The humbling reality of who Jesus Christ is transformed Paul's ministry. The humbling reality of who calls us to salvation and into ministry should cultivate the same in us. It should cultivate joyful fruit in our life as we see that that's what it did in the Apostle Paul's life. Paul, Paul didn't serve Jesus the way he served the law or the way he served tradition as Saul. He served Jesus out of the abundance of his heart, out of the joy of his heart. And the fruit of his life was multiple, right? I mean, we see the multiplicity of his fruit in Timothy's life, Titus' life, all the churches throughout the book of Acts. Paul never boasted in his apostleship. 
He was always humble in his ministry, but he was always driven by this very fact that it was Jesus Christ who saved me, the foremost of all sinners, so that in me Christ might display his perfect patience. Paul's saying, look, when you see that Jesus can save someone like me, everybody else is encouraged. There's no one worse. If you think about it, in Paul's estimation, you know, he is right. Paul was dead set as Saul to murder the body of Christ. He continued to attack over and over again until one day Christ said, stop. Christ exerted his superior authority over Saul's will. He said, you're mine. It's over. Done. Follow me. Paul was forever humbled by that. But it didn't just create humility in Paul. It also created boldness in Paul. Look at 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy, we see that Christ's authority, not just his testimony of being deity, the Lord, but his authority as Lord created, not just cultivated humility, but it created boldness and purpose, I would add, in the Apostle Paul's life. It added great boldness. If you look at chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, See, when, when, when Paul's trying to encourage Timothy in the second letter, he's writing to Timothy from a prison. It's the prison from which he would die. It's his last letter, his last epistle. And he's writing to Timothy because Timothy is at a church like at Colossae. He's at Ephesus. And false teachers were coming in and intimidating him and trying to oppose him. And, and Paul's writing to encourage him, to stir up his faith. And he does so by focusing on who Christ is and his authority. And he appeals to that at the very end of this letter. He says in verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Well, this is holy boldness here. You must understand, Timothy's a young man, intimidated by older men who seem to have more authority, but... Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Who appointed you? Christ. And, and I am commanding you, I am charging you in His presence to preach His Word. Be ready in season and out of season. That means be ready when it's fun and when it's not so fun. Be ready all the time. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. And he says, here's why. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And in verse 5 he says, let this be a, a, a truth that will humbly transform you and make you bold. Look what he says. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And you want to you look at real boldness? You look at Paul's life. Verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have agonized, is the word that they use in the Greek. I have agonized for Christ. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who loved 
His appearing. Do you love His appearing? Do you know He's going to reward you on that day with a crown of righteousness? He is doing that. It is the Lord Himself. This is the motivation for boldness. Humble boldness. The bold reality of who commands our destiny, who commands our ministry, who commands us personally, should create what it created in the Apostle Paul, which was an inextinguishable faith. Persecution couldn't put it out. Death couldn't put it out. He knew he was going to die. But he says, that's okay. I'm dying. But guess what, Timothy? You got the Word. Preach the Word. Don't rely on Paul. The Word does the Word. Martin Luther said, all I did was preach the Word and went to sleep. God did the rest. And the Reformation was occurring. When we know who Christ is, that He is the firstborn, the preeminent one, and that He ranks over all men and all things, and that He came personally to rescue us, it will transform us. God the Holy Spirit knows that our view of who Christ is is intended to transform us. That's why He gave us this revelation. So let me just end with this. Let me end with a couple of questions. How do you see Christ? How do you view Christ? Do you ponder Him, dwell upon Him, meditate upon Him, and see Him the way Paul sees Him in Colossians 1.15? Is Jesus... This is what you need to ask yourself. I need to ask myself, is Jesus first in rank in my life? Is Jesus Lord in all areas of my life? If He is, am I unashamed of Him? Am I declaring Him with humble boldness? Is that my testimony? Can it be my testimony? Why, I believe it can be, because that's what this is written for. It can be your testimony. It should be our testimony. We want it to be our testimony. But the only way it will become our testimony is for us to meditate on it continually. If you set your mind on who Christ is, your life will conform into His image. Colossians 3, 1 says, here's what you need to set your minds on. If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Why? Well, he says, verse 3, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. You get that? Rest in Christ. Set your mind on who Christ is, what Christ has accomplished. When you are tempted, when you are tried, when you are struggling, remember, you're going to appear with the Lord of glory. Set your mind on this, that your life, according to Colossians, our lives as believers are hid in Christ. What that means is our life is hidden in Christ's perfections. We are covered by His righteousness. We are kept by His grace. We are protected by His sovereignty. That, that should lead us to humble boldness. That should lead us to sanctification. If you go on to read chapter 3, that's what it says. Everything hinges on 
focusing on who Christ is in our life. If you want to grow, focus on Christ. If you want to be an effective witness, focus on Christ. If you want to be saved from your sins, focus on Christ. Look to Christ. Turn from your sin. Trust in His righteousness. Trust in His judgments. Trust in His authority. Paul, Paul is trying, like I said, to, to put steel in the backbones of the Christians at Colossae so they would be undaunted when they are attacked by false teaching. At the same time, I think he's also trying to help them to worship Christ appropriately. And that's, that's our goal as a church. Um, teaching, preaching, equipping the saints, it's in order to edify you, to build you up in the faith so that you can magnify Christ not just with your mind, but with your life. Let's pray that we'll do that as we, as we ponder and look upon the firstborn of all creation, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father God, we thank You for delivering us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of Your beloved Son who is the image of the invisible God, who is the preeminent One over all creation, and who is the one who is coming to receive us to himself and to judge those who have rebelled against your grace. Jesus, you are worthy of our humble boldness. Our lives are in your hands. We belong to you. You are our master. And you are a good and gracious Lord. You have given us not just the feeling of our salvation in our heart, but you have given us the reality and the testimony of how you accomplish that through your word, which is more sure than our feelings. When we feel intimidated and we feel like we have fallen short and we feel like we can't testify to your greatness and your preeminence, let us rest in knowing that you will sanctify us through our failures. You're sovereign over them as well as our salvation. You're using all things in our lives lives to conform us more and more into the image of Christ, including our failures, even the failure to exalt Christ. Even today as we're confronted with that, we know that we, we need to repent of trying to guide our own lives. We need to rest in the one who is preeminent over all our lives. We need to see that our life is intended to glorify you, Jesus. We pray that we would do that until you come and then perfectly when you come. Help us long, Lord, long for the day that we see the reality of what you revealed to us here in Colossians 1.15. Jesus, we pray that you would come quickly and that you would make us faithful until you come so that we could testify to you now and always for your glory. Amen.